you know, and, and no one in Hollywood is going to help you if, uh, if you fail. You know, there's not, you can't trust anyone. You can't depend on anyone. And, you know, and, th and that's, that's what it comes down to. And so I had no safety net and there was no one who was there to tell me that things were not going well. And I went into the meeting and I just thought I could wing it. And I, I which is stupid because I'd gone into meetings before very well prepared and I hadn't gotten big deals, but at least I'd walked out of there thinking, well, you know, I, you know, I, 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 I hit the ball, <laughs> you know, I didn't, I may not have hit a home run, but I, you know, whereas I, I just went in there and I, I literally, I, I might as well have just gone in, you know, wearing a pair of boxers shorts on my head. You know, I was that much of a buffoon and, um, and nothing. And, and to me that even though I, I hung around in Hollywood for a few years after that, that was the beginning of the end. And it was the beginning of the end of what I would call my famous period as well, because I had a little run there in the aughts where I was, you know, a famous writer to some extent. Hello, everyone. Welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about fame. Episode 26. I'm Jamie Berger, and hello. I already said that, but hello again. Recently, and from time to time, I think about little mistakes I've made in these 25 episodes so far. And one that keeps coming to mind is when I was sitting with Eugene Merman, and he said... You know how they say, don't meet your heroes. And I was like, really? They say that? And I don't know where what happened to my brain at that moment. But of course, they say, don't meet your heroes. But at that moment, I had no memory of ever having heard anyone say, don't meet your heroes. So while no one but, but a few of you and me are ever going to re-listen to Eugene's episode, I think all the time about how ridiculous that must have sounded to a few people on Earth besides me. And I bring that up because tomorrow for an episode a couple weeks from now, I'm going to be talking to one of my heroes, uh, the writer George Saunders. And I just want you to know that and look for that episode. And, well, because none of you will hear this until after I've had the conversation with George Saunders, um, especially my friend, uh, Hardy White, who is capable of time travel. Those of the rest of you who are also capable of time, time, travel, time travel, please travel back to before, tomorrow, and send me good wishes for my conversation. I'm really looking forward to it. My guest today is Neil Pollock, and I will read you some of what Neil Pollock has written about Neil Pollock on Neil Pollock's website. Neil Pollock has written 10 best-selling books of fiction and nonfiction that have been published in multiple languages around the world. A 1992 graduate of Northwestern University's Medill, I hope it's Medill, School of Journalism, Pollock spent seven years as a staff writer at the Chicago Reader. 
In 2000, he published his first book, The Neil Pollock Anthology of American Literature, as the inaugural volume in Dave Eggers' McSweeney's book imprint, and satirically started calling himself the greatest living American writer. Believing his own press, Pollock quit his job and embarked on a successful freelance career. His articles, satire, and commentary have appeared in the New York Times, GQ, Esquire, The New Republic, The Nation, and pretty much every other American publication except for The New Yorker. Pollock has since been a columnist for Vanity Fair, The New York Press, Parents.com, and other publications which no longer exist. Among other projects, he's written a best-selling detective series set in the L.A. yoga scene. He currently writes a car column called The Unenthusiast for Time, Inc.'s The Drive, continues to write as the greatest living American writer at Salon, and works as the Texas correspondent for The Cannabist, an online marijuana newspaper. Pollock is also the host, with his 14-year-old son Elijah, of Extra Credit, a channel, uh, more or less a podcast, on audible.com, where Pollock tries to teach Elijah dubious lessons that he won't get in school. He has been a guest on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and was featured on an early episode of This American Life. Pollock recorded a disastrous but entertaining album, Never Mind the Pollocks, get it? with his band The Neil Pollock Invasion, which was recently re-released by Chicken Ranch Records. The Neil Pollock Invasion played South by Southwest many times, and Pollock has performed his spoken word act at cultural festivals around the world, playing on bills with David Byrne, They Might Be Giants, John Doe, and many others. Pollock loves cheese, marijuana, Boston Terriers, the Los Angeles Dodgers, classic cinema, and you. My own Neil Pollock story is this. Back when I was living in San Francisco, being in or around the early days of McSweeney's internet tendency in McSweeney's, the literary and satirical magazine, uh, wasn't the most famous thing in the world, but it felt like the coolest thing in the world. And among the writers who one read a lot in McSweeney's was Pollock. And at some point, we had some interchange on email or something. And as one gets older, you'll find that this happens more and more, youngins who are listening. But I have a vague memory of Neil Pollock coming to San Francisco to read. And I couldn't attend. But either on a McSweeney's post or someone came from the reading and told me, that Neil Pollock, author of the first book on the McSweeney's imprint, had given me a shout-out at the reading. And at the time, I remember feeling that that was very special. Since then, we've been friends on Facebook, and in this age we live in, I honestly don't remember whether we've ever met in person. But we certainly chatted on Thanksgiving weekend. And here's what we said. There we go. Good. 
you were about to describe what you do and how it relates to. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to politics, I, I, I guess I play a couple of extremely minor background roles. You know, on the one hand, I'm a reporter, so I have a couple of um, beats that I cover transportation, education to some extent, and uh, you know, the world of marijuana. And so, you know, I try to write about what's happening in those worlds, but I'm not. You know, I'm not going after the macro stories, the big stories of the day. I just, I just can't. It's not a um, pond I want to be swimming in. Um, and then, you know, in terms of my satire writing, I feel like my job is to make fun of pomposity across the political spectrum. And uh, if nothing else, this election and the aftermath have, you know, it's been a um, a goldmine of that uh, for me in that way. You know, there's just just endless. Um, punditry on all on all sides, just an endless pretension. So, um, so I'm trying to have fun with all of that as much as I can, as much as I can, given that I'm I'm feeling as much uncertainty and doubt, and uh, to some extent fear as as everyone else. Yeah, have you had any luck yet creating? Well, I mean, I have my weekly column for Salon, and I have you know made fun of the right and the left and the center. And the snotty liberals and the snotty conservatives. So there's just there's it's not going to end. It's never going to end. And so, as long as I can just sort of keep sane, um, and you know, when you're writing satire, people, I mean, actually nobody really cares what I'm doing. But you know, people on the left want me to be some sort of avatar of the revolution, and people conservatives would like me to get with the program and. I don't know. And, and, you know, and I, I just, I'm not really with any program, you know, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just trying to see what's going on and make fun of it as best I can. When I first started doing this, what, six months ago or so now, you, 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 you immediately came to mind because of back in the McSweeney's days, uh, not only that kind of flash hip fame, but the character that you portrayed in there was so, utterly uh famous other yes and utterly pleased with his own fame yes uh so so i thought of you just as i think you know but satire is satire is satire but the <laughs> I, I always felt there must be a a hint of you in there to uh have come up yeah. with him yeah i mean to some extent i when i first started writing in that character it was to parody what I'm parodying now, which is, you know, pompous literary journalism and pompous punditry. And, uh, you know, when I first started writing The Greatest Living American Writer, the people who I was most directly making fun of, Gore Vidal, Norman Mailer, Hunter Thompson, they were all still alive. So, you know, it had, it had a little more weight. And so, and, and, you know, now most of that generation is gone. And so I, uh, I've had to pivot a little bit. So when I first started writing those pieces, I was not famous in any way. I was just a newspaper reporter in Chicago. I was just an ordinary guy. I mean, like I still am, but I was, <laughs> I, was I, I was a you know 27, 28 year old newspaper reporter in Chicago. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I wanted it to some extent. I'm sorry, I'm coughing a little bit. That's okay. But I, I wanted it a little bit, but um, I also didn't really ever think I was going to it achieve fame in any in any real way before i get to that because I, I i definitely want to talk about that 
it, did you try to get the book to any of those lions, literary lions? No, no, I never, I never made the attempt. I, I always kind of considered myself an outsider. Um, they probably knew about it, or at least some of them did. I mean, it was reviewed on page three of the New York Times book, you know, I mean, prominently full page reviews. So somebody had to know it was out there. I never heard from anybody. I got a, I got a, a, a note once from Nora Ephron, who was not someone I was parodying in the book, you know? Um, saying that she thought uh, the character was funny, uh, but beyond, but but you know, and, and then I then I managed to um, write a few greatest living American writer columns in Vanity Fair, um, back during the uh, the the days of the Gulf War, um, and or the lead up to the Gulf War. So uh, clearly, it got someone's attention at some point. But was I ever inducted into that you know secret society? No, no. Did I ever get a call from Norman Mailer or Gore Vidal or anybody? No, uh, I I mention it because one of my uh, earlier guests, a uh, filmmaker named Penny Lane, her given name, uh, she, her one of her first uh, our Nixon was a documentary she made, and at, when she was making it, she was living in an apartment, and she moved, and six months after she moved out, uh, her um, former roommate or the landlord told her there's a piece of mail that was crammed in the bottom of the mailbox for you. And it's from Philip Roth. Mm. And she had a, a fan note from Philip Roth that she almost never saw. Yeah. I've never received anything even remotely close to that. And I never intend to. No, it's not, it's not going to happen. So it's, and that's okay. It doesn't matter. Has your, your, have you eased into that feeling or have you yeah, felt that way? That, that it doesn't matter. I do what I do. Well, I think it's something that I'm feeling more now. You know, I'm in my late, I'm in my late forties, the second half of my forties now. And I've, you know, you just kind of at some point realize like, okay, um, it really does, it doesn't matter, especially after you get a little bit of a taste of it and you see how fleeting it is and how pointless it all is. Um, you know, my goal is to make a decent living if I can and to enjoy my family and friends and try not to go crazy. Mm-hmm. That's it. Those those are those are good goals. I have very very similar ones. But yeah. So anyways, yes. Yeah, so you were you 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 went and reviewed the history. I did. I reviewed the history, and and that that was a great that AV Club interview is is just chock full of stuff. Um, but I want to know about the time in LA and the meeting. And I guess what I'm more interested in is I have a friend who's just finished his first season of a show. Mm-hmm. on true tv mm-hmm. and he doesn't seem like it's it, it's changed his life financially yeah but it's also taken him away from making his own creative work yeah and so i wonder you know what what do you feel life how life would have changed if hbo if you had gone in with well-developed characters we should give some background to this well yeah ba- yeah so basically what happened was i wrote a book called alternadad which was a chronicle of, uh, it was a very simple little memoir about being a hipster parent. And it got optioned by Hollywood. And uh, I moved my entire family out to LA in order to turn it into a movie or a TV show or both. Basically, I was trying to build a media empire around mm-hmm. Alternadad. And I, I felt like it was, a, it was a property that I think had a chance to, um, to take off in, in that way, because it was a, you know, very nice, simple family comedy. It had a, it had a, a you know, a, a good setting, and uh, and 
And a, a, a bunch of things happened, but one of the things that happened was is I heard that HBO was looking for a show about hipster parents on the east side of L.A. And I was a hipster parent on the east side of L.A., and I'd written Alternadad. And so I told I had agents, and I told them to get me a meeting with HBO. And they were like, you're, you know, they were – a lot of them were like, you're not ready. I don't want to do this. And I was like, no, I'm going to do this. I'm, I can do this. I, I want it. And I went in there to that meeting with an agent and I prepared nothing. <laughs> I, I had no characters. I had no story. I had nothing. And if I had just, and I'd done TV pitches before and I'd done them well and I'd done them intelligently and I'd come close to selling shows. And if I had just done even even a halfway decent job, I think I would have walked out of there with at least uh, money to write a pilot script, mm-hmm. you know, or, or, or at least a production partner or something. I, I feel like, you know, and I, I just, I went in there and I, I, I shat the bed in mm-hmm. ways that, that you can't even possibly imagine. I was just I was an, an incredible idiot. And, um, you know, that was the beginning of the end for me. Well, the the interviewer didn't press you on this, but do you think part of it was feeling like you were that guy, you were living there, you wrote Alternative, you were just entitled and they were going to just say yes? Or do you think part of you was like, there was something in you that didn't want it to work out? No, I wanted it to work out. (laughs) No, no. I was just an idiot. You know, I felt maybe a little entitled, but really what it came down to is I just, I, 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 I didn't prepare I didn't have good advice. Um, I didn't, I, I was just poorly, I was just not ready for it. And, um, you know, and, and no one in Hollywood is going to help you if, uh, if you fail. You know, there's not, you can't trust anyone. You can't depend on anyone. And, you know, and, th- and that's, that's what it comes down to. And so I had no safety net and there was no one who was there to tell me that things were not going well. And I went into the meeting and I just thought I could wing it. And I, I which is stupid because I'd gone into meetings before very well prepared and I hadn't gotten big deals, but at least I'd walked out of there thinking, well, you know, I, you know, I, 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 I hit the ball, <laughs> you know, I didn't, I may not have hit a home run, but I, you know, whereas I, I just went in there and I, I literally, I, I might as well have just gone in, you know, wearing a pair of boxers shorts on my head. You know, I was that much of a buffoon and, um, and nothing. And, and to me that even though I, I hung around in Hollywood for a few years after that, that was the beginning of the end. And it was the beginning of the end of what I would call my famous period as well, because I had a little run there in the aughts where I was, you know, a famous writer to some extent. You were, you know, and it's hard to. You know, I mean, to an extent, you still are because you're still that guy from the aughts. You're not. You're not. No, you're not. No, you're not Scott Baio. No, but no one cares. You know what I mean? Like, I guess what I'm saying is like, I meet a lot of people who have no freaking idea who I am. You know, or you know, pe- people who are reading the stuff I'm writing now, they don't know this this history. This is it's like obscure. It's obscure, you know, and. uh even even then it was obscure, like a very small percentage of people ever cared. But, you know, the sort of the um, literati, the literati, my name was dropped in certain places here and there. You know, I was attacked by Gawker. Yes. And um, we, yes, I was going to talk about that. But we, we people living in the mission uh, in San Francisco knew your name. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and your work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but, but now, now the people who are doing, living in the mission now, 
mostly don't. And I'm like, I'm basically like in like an indie rock band that they used to go see. And, you know, and I'm still alive and I'm still doing my, my stuff, still touring around, you know, still, still making albums or whatever. But, uh, but it's not, um, you know, it's not the, the, the heyday. And, um, you know, in some ways it's, it, it sucks because I did enjoy it. <laughs> I really did enjoy the notoriety, but in a lot, in other ways, um, it's, it's better because I can go about my business and then once in a while, someone will pop up and say, Hey, I really enjoyed that book. And that, that's a good feeling to know that I, you know, I made at least a small impression on somebody. And I, you know, to me, that's enough, honestly. Yeah. I, that, that's good. And, and it's enough in that it has, a, it, it did establish you with a career. Yeah. That now yeah, you no, are a writer. You, 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 do. I have been for 25 years, you know, and that's, and, and, and at this point, you know, there's not really much else I can do. And I do still get paid work. Um, and it, which, which is not easy to find. And I still, you know, I, I, am able to maintain, uh, an audience to some extent. And you know, there, there's always a chance that, that something I write could hit again. I, I don't have, I don't have a huge amount of hope, but, um, there's, there's a small, I still have a small amount of hope. Mm -hmm. Is there a particular ambitious project? I just really what I want. I mean, I, I like the mix that I've got now, you know, I, I like being able to do a little journalisms. Um, and I like being able to write my, I, I'm, I'm very happy that the greatest living American writer has, uh, survived. And, you know, I have a weekly platform for that on salon, which is, you know, not the place that it, it was, but it's still a site that people read, you know? And so those pieces still get read by thousands of people. Um, so, you know, you combine those things with, so I still have an internet presence and you combine that with, I'd like, you know, to, with fiction writing, you know, I published five novels in the last five years and I don't have one in the works right now, but that could change at any moment. And you had um, some, some, did you have serialized detective stuff now? Yeah, I had this detective, this yoga detective character who I created and I published those books serially um, for the Kindle and now they're just available as books on Amazon um, one of them is called Downward Facing Death. That's, that's, that's the first one of the series, you know, and I, and I'd like to bring that character back and I, you know, I, I can write those books pretty quickly. So I, I just basically like the mix that I have right now is pretty satisfying to me. And I have a podcast too, because everybody has a podcast and it's on Audible and I co-host it with my teenage son and, um, you know, it's doing pretty well. So I have to listen to it. I have not listened to it. Tell me the name yeah, again. It's called Extra Credit. And basically, it's like a father-son comedy investigative reporting show about the public school system in Texas, where I live for some reason. And um, and it also, you know, cr criticizes public public education from a, I guess, from the left, from a liberal perspective. But in any case, yeah. So you know, for so to me, like um, you know, a lot of the critique criticism of education comes from the right. And I share their, I don't share their conclusions, but I do share their doubts about um, the efficacy of Common Core and of, you know, trying to teach everybody the same thing <laughs> because in the same way. Um, so, yeah, so the show's about that. Anyway, so I guess what it comes down to is that I have um, a lot of uh, stuff going on at the moment. And uh, I just, I, just I, I hope to keep it going. We, all that we've just talked about, there were two two notes I took. 
One, one, two things I'd love to hear you say a little bit more about. One is the experience with Infamy and Gawker, and one is your thoughts on branding, because you were just talking about your brand, and you also wrote about distaste for branding. In, in, uh, you didn't write about it. You, uh, in an interview, I read about it. So pick yeah. one of those. Well, we'll start with, I can take them one at a time. You know, Gawker um, launched, uh, basically, like, when, when Gawker first started, they thought I was cool, Right. Um, and so I benefited from their patronage in some ways. And then at some point, you know, the editors changed over and I started doing this alternate ad stuff and they decided that I was not cool. And I was representative of a certain kind of like bougie hipster parenting thing that they just didn't approve of that they found pretentious, which is, you know, it's not like they were totally wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's not like uh, you were totally denying it either. No, no. I mean, that's fine. If they wanted to make fun of my writing, then then you know that they had every right to do that, and they and they did it, and I didn't enjoy it, but I took it like a like a like like a, sort of a man. I guess I'm sort of a man. But then they started attacking my son. <clears throat> you know, they started turning their who I was admittedly using as a character in my writing, and I had a YouTube show with him. And I've, Elijah and I have always kind of had this, you know father-son comedy team thing going on and they but they started really going after him in some very harsh ways and so I, I you know I got I got upset and I complained about it on the internet I sent out emails I basically waged an early gawker war you know I was one of the first people that complained about who they were and what they were doing and how they were doing it and talking about, and so so when the um you know, Gawker's death year started. I was with, just going to ask, yeah. With the Hulk Hogan lawsuit, I wasn't part of the lawsuit. Um, although it's funny, I still get mailings about the settlement because I wrote some pieces for Jalopnik, which is Gawker, which was Gawker Media's uh, car site. Um, but uh, but that's that's as a contributor, not as a, a victim. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so but but anyway, so when that you know when when that that uh, the Hulk Hogan lawsuit really started to to uh, percolate and, and it looked like they were, they were going to go out of business. You know, they often used the Gawker, you know, mocked a four-year-old as an example of how horrible they were and how they deserved to go. And, you know, I was, a, I, I kind of was like, a, I was of two minds of it. On the one hand, I'm, I'm a media person and, you know, the idea of a billionaire being able to fund a lawsuit that uh, to put a website that he doesn't like out of business made me uncomfortable. But on the other hand, it, I w- it was just delic- delicious uh, schadenfreude for me to um, to watch this this place that I loathed, basically, fall so spectacularly. Um, and while I do have friends who write for some of the wrote for some of the other Gawker sites, sites like Deadspin and uh, Jalopnik um, and IO9, those sites kept going. They were bought by Univision, so those people didn't even lose their jobs. So, so, so to see Gawker go down, I have to admit, was I felt very gratified uh, about it, even even while I recognized that um, it was problematic for for free speech. Um, I just, I was just not going to join that funeral. And in fact, I wrote about peace for salon making, you know, it's like, it's like, I'm, I'm, I was like, I'm a, I was just picking off the carrion a little bit. I know that's kind of, and it's kind of, um, it's kind of cynical to say so, but, uh, you know, I, I just, I simply couldn't mourn them, uh, like a lot of people I knew were, you know? So, yeah. So, so it was complicated because it's like, it's like on one hand, Gawker helped make me semi-famous and on the other hand, they helped. They, they were integral in tearing down my whatever I, I, I built. So, 
you know, it just, it was just kind of gross. The whole thing was kind of gross and sleazy. Um, and, uh, but all I know is that they're gone and I'm in a very small way still here. Mm-hmm. You know, you are, I don't, I don't know why or how, I guess it's like, a, I guess if you're just like, if you operate on a plane that is obscure enough, people will just, you know, kind of let you do what you let you do your thing. So, they and, and so, yeah, so that, that's that. And then, um, so yeah, I mean, I, so I'm very, I'm very conflicted. I will admit it. I'm very conflicted about what happened there. Um, both sad and, and glad at the same time. Uh, so the, the other thing, what, what was the other topic? I, I think a lot more people had mixed feelings about it than are willing to admit because you don't want to take Peter Thiel's side. That, yeah, so that I think more people feel the way you do but aren't as willing to say so. You don't want to take Peter Thiel's side, but on the other hand, that's not someone you want to cross. So. Right. Yeah, fair like, enough. Maybe you just, maybe just my main my main goal was to like, you know, make little snarky jokes about it on Twitter um but but not 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 throw myself into the middle of it because it wasn't about to be quite, to be quite honest. Okay, so what was the other topic? Uh, the other topic, and I have a third, was branding, and 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 you know you talk about you you've talked in this in this half hour about your various uh, exploits, but about how you know you got wrapped up in the what I guess the alternative brand brand or the or the satirist brand. No, the satirist is just kind of a job description. I mean. You know, yeah. I mean, altern- I tried to turn Alternated into this kind of multi-platform lifestyle brand. You know, I went to where I went to you know conferences, branding conferences, and I and and uh, you know, and these mommy blogger and daddy blogger conferences. You'd be the goop goop of male. I don't know. I did. I, you know, I had a site called Offsprung that I started. There was kind of a you know parenting website that that had humor and tips and stuff and then you know i had a youtube thing that i was doing i but i i guess i don't know it it all just felt kind of i didn't have a lot of um i i'm, I'm a bad boss is what it was what i learned like i'm not gonna be I'm, i can't i have to be a like a uh the wacky uncle you know i have to be the, a free you know a free agent type like i i can't run an empire and i feel like you know there's so much in our culture that tells us that we all have to be our own brand you know and that the brand has to mean something and oftentimes i'm criticized because i do all this different stuff and you can't fo- you can't pin any one thing down and i'm just you know it just and i understand that but you know i'm not a brand i'm a person <laughs> you know i'm not a soda i'm not a i'm not a shoe <laughs> I'm not, a, I'm not a car. I'm not a, I'm, I'm, I'm not a chemical. You know what I mean? Like those things you can brand because they're not human, you know, but, or I feel like most, and some people do successfully brand themselves, but it's just not something I, I feel like it's, you have to really, it requires a persistence and focus that I just simply don't have. And I don't care to have, you know, I'd rather just do my stuff and get paid for it. And if any sort of persona or brand emerges out of that organically, then great. You know, like right now, I'm um, I have some, I have I have some some of my recent novels have they've sold okay, but I'd like to, them to sell more, and so I'm in the process of you know putting up Facebook pages for them, and you know, and and maybe doing doing some target ad, targeted advertising and all that. And I know it's a little late to the game, but it still works. But I feel, but but I feel like um, you know, even that makes me a little uncomfortable 
if that makes sense. It's like, it's like, I mean, I'm going to do, I'm going to do it because I want to sell some product, but, um, you know, it's like, I don't want to be a brand beyond anything other than I'm a writer. Here's stuff I've written. I hope you like it. Yeah. It's taken me until you don't have to convince me. I mean, cause it's, it's taken me till age 52 to finally be willing to market what I do at all. So marketing is different than branding though. Marketing, marketing is just merely like trying to find people who will be interested in your stuff. Branding is putting your, your name in gold on buildings all over the world. Yeah, well, exactly. And, you know, and that is good for some presidents and some people. Um, but I just, I, I don't have dreams. I guess those dreams of empire have faded for me. And I just, I just don't, I don't want it in, 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 in that badly. You know, I just want to, you know, make a little cash and do what I want, write my stuff and hopefully, you know, you know, may, you know, do a little good, but not too much good. I don't, my ambitions are not, are not huge and that's it, you know? And I, and I feel like, I feel like people get so caught up in trying to build a brand that they lose, they lose sight of other stuff. It's a, it's a good position to be in. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I hope I can stay here. Uh, okay. I'm going to say a name. <laughs> Arthur Chu. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because you and I, this is the only time I apologized to you on Facebook years ago because I thought you were being a little sensitive about well, I was Arthur on Chu. Jeopardy. And, and he was a little bit he was a little better at it than I was, to say the least. I felt, yeah, but he was gaming the system. Well, he played a certain way. And um I wouldn't say he, he, you know, he people weren't ready for what he brought out. Now I think they would be more ready now. Um but even when you watch Jeopardy now, it's like you watch people play and I'm like, oh, nobody, no one was paying attention. Like once in a while, a player will come along who has a different style that, 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 that flips people's lids. And he was, he was the first one to do it in a while. But really what I found annoying about him was, was not how he played Jeopardy, but how he played uh, it into a persona on Twitter. And he wrote for Salon for a while. And, you know, he, you know, he kind of placed himself in the middle of everything. You know, he became a, he branded himself, you know, he, and, and it was, um, how shall I put it? You know, it was, it was annoying. Yeah. It seems like an, an, a very familiar, uh, projecting myself into you, the, the feeling of, 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 uh, disgust with a little envy mixed in. Yeah. Yeah. It was annoying. As a writer, he certainly knew how to craft an argument and, and get people riled up, but he didn't have a lot of wit. He didn't have a lot of, um, you know, self awareness or, or he, or he had excessive self awareness. And it was just the whole, the whole phenomenon. But, 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 you know, to his credit, he has, uh, retreated and uh, in a lot of ways. And, um, if not repented, then at least show, you know, he, fig well, he figured it, he figured out what I figured out, which is that it's fleeting. You know what I mean? And that, and that you have in order to carry something out long term, you've got to you require something different than, than to become like, uh, than to become some kind of brand. And he just didn't have enough, you know, behind him to like be a, like a lifestyle brand. I mean, you know. Anyway, but yeah. So he just, you know, and, and I think he just part of it was that he just um. You know, he he was at the in the right place at the right time, and Jeopardy was having a little cultural moment, and uh, he surfed it. 
you know, more power to him. But that, that moment is long past. How many days did you? I won three games and I, I, I finished four I, 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 and I finished second in uh, my fourth game uh, after I overbet on Final Jeopardy. So I played, you know, I played hard. I won some money. I, I, was, I made enough to put a down payment on this little house that I, that I live in. That's great. And, uh, yeah. And, you know, it was great. And it was really, it was really, um, I'll always have it. But, uh, you know, at the same time, it, it um, you know, it sort of brought back some of that, you know, I was on TV, so it brought back some of that, that fame lust. Of course. And, yeah. You know, and, and, and uh, but like the other times I was on TV, uh, it was not followed by requests to appear on TV again, you know? So it's like, I had a little, little burst of like, I'm awesome. I'm awesome. I'm awesome. And then it takes you a few months for you to realize yet again, that you're actually not awesome. So, but it was something cool that I did and I'm, I'll, I'll never forget it. And I'll, you know, and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll always have, I'll always have jeopardy. Yes. Yes. I'll have to dig up some clips. Do you have a favorite? Was there a favorite moment or question or something from that week? Or well, wasn't it? Did, were they all filmed? Yeah, they probably were. Yeah, they all filmed them in one day. You know, that first game that I won where I was so, I was way down. I had 600 bucks at the end of uh, the first round and it just looked like I was going to go down in flames. And there was that, there was a double, there was a, um, I got a daily double in the second round. It was a, a U.S. geography question and I, I bet all my money and I got it right. And, it, you know, and it was just so, and then it launched me in, back into the game and it was just so gratifying, you know, and so exciting <laughs> to, to get. You know, you know, it's like hitting a clutch shot, you know, and I, and I, and I did it and I had my moment because you see people all the time, people who are as smart, if not smarter than I am. Right. And you know, they get the question and they just don't know the answer, you know, and it's like they bet, right. They get it and it just doesn't go their way. And, you know, it's like I, it, it went my way and it was just so, such a thrill. And it was such a thrill to what, when it, when it aired a month later to be sitting in a bar with all my friends and I. I knew it was going to happen and they were all looking at me with pity in their eyes. And I just, I was like, like, Oh, we're going to have such a great party. And it was, and you, so you hadn't told them. It was just so wonderful. No, I hadn't, I hadn't told them only my wife and my son and my parents, my parents knew because they'd been there, but only my wife and my son knew. Um, And I, you know, generally I'm, I'm, I got a pretty big mouth. So that's fantastic. Figured that if I wasn't talking about it, it must not have gone well. And then someone said to me, you know, like, you know, you know, Neil, you're the only person who would throw a party if you lose <laughs> on Jeopardy. But uh, um, anyway, it was, it was great. There were so many people. It was just such a wonderful moment in my life. That's and, terrific. Yeah. Were you, were you confident of all three of your Final Jeopardy question answers? Uh, I only, I, I had four Final Jeopardies and I only got two. Yeah, I got my first two right, and then I missed my last two. My sec- my third game, I was an- ahead enough so that uh, it didn't matter that I missed it, and the other two also missed it. And then, then you know, and I, the fourth one was really hard. I got my first two right, and the second one I got right was was I was also way behind, but I was the only one to get that answer right, and I won again. So you know, my first two games were extremely thrilling, um, and I just you know I just didn't quite have enough in the tank you know, to put it away for that fourth game. Well, it sounds like an exciting moment. I, I had my, I, I, I was never, I don't, I'm not a uh, wide ranging enough. I'm always good at certain topics on Jeopardy, but I did once go to a, a wheel of fortune tryout in New uh-huh. York. Yeah. How'd that go? I, I choked. 
Yeah. I was really good at it. <laughs> and I choked. Yeah, yeah well, people yeah. choke. No, yeah. Yep. It happens, you know, and uh, it, it happens on at tryouts. It happens on the show. It's just it's just the nature of the business. And I'm, I'm fortunate enough that I, I had just enough in the tank mentally. You know, I, I, I spent I stopped smoking weed for two months. I did yoga every day. I meditated. I, I, I lost 15 pounds. Wow. I was, you know, I, I trained like an elite athlete. That's great. And, uh, you know, it was literally just enough to put me over the line. Like if I'd done any less, if I'd done any more, I might've done a little better, but if I'd done any less, I, I, I wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't have gone the way it did. Yeah. Hey, a last topic. It's not about fame, but, um, I live in Massachusetts where we just legalized, uh, recreational marijuana. I don't, I don't know about your marijuana writing. Oh yeah. I'm, um, I've, I've written a few pieces of, of journalism for this publication called the cannabis uh, which is put out by uh, the Denver Post. So it's a marijuana newspaper. But, you know, and they started it um, in 2014 when Texas legal, oh, not Texas, when Colorado. <laughs> it's not going to happen here. But it, when, in Col- when Colorado legalized recreational weed, you know, the, the uh, editors there understood that it was going to be um, the story of our, of, 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 if not our time in the U.S., then at least in Colorado. And so they hired um, a, a guy to run, named Ricardo Vaca, to run the site. And then he hired a bunch of people. And, uh, you know, a fr- friends hooked us up. And I did a few pieces for him. And they recently just signed me up to be their Texas correspondent to do a couple of articles a month about efforts to legalize and decriminalize marijuana in Texas. Um, and it was all looking pretty good until election night. And uh, now they're talking, you know, with, with the Jeff Sessions um, – Attorney generalship looming, you know, there's there's a lot of fear that they're going to reignite the war on drugs um, uh, with good reason. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm less optimistic about things than I was. But that doesn't mean that there's nothing to write about. There's a lot to write about. So it's just going to be instead of writing about, you know, a slow effort to um, it, it might go from being a story about, a, you know, a slow but ultimately successful effort to. Uh, legalized marijuana in Texas, it might turn into something more about, you know, a brutal and um, and sad crackdown, um, which will be more stressful to write about, but it certainly won't be boring. So, um, so we'll see. You know, it's just, it's it's a topic I'm interested in. It's a beat that I know a lot about and that I can cover with some degree of intelligence. So, uh, you know. And, and and that stuff is not. Um, our articles are very straightforward and journalistic. And, and and not um, you know they're not super boostery they're not they're not they're it's not hipster journalism it's just I went to journalism school and I worked at a newspaper in Chicago and and it just um, I'm trying to tap back into those skills and not call too much attention to myself I'm just uh, just a reporter. Uh, do you have any any anything that came up in your mind when you when I asked you to do this that anything about fame that I haven't hit on in your life or in your just mind? Well, you know, only that I feel like even now, like writers go, go into, go into it for, for, um, because they think they're going to get famous. Young writers still have that dream of being the famous novelist. And I, and, you know, to my mind, that's just not an achievable goal anymore. Um, and even if you do become a famous writer, nobody knows who you are. You know, it's like being, it's like opera or, or ballet or other arts that are important and have a long and rich and treasured history and must be preserved at all costs. 
but they have a limited audience that is, you know, concentrated heavily in a few cities. Um, there's still a lot, there's a lot of people who read, but you know, in terms of like what a famous writer is going to be, I mean, it's very, there's very few people ever achieve that. So if you're looking to get famous, that's not really, it's not going to happen. And even the fame that you do achieve is, is kind of going to, is going to be very, very, um, small scale and minimalist. So I, I, I would not encourage anyone to make that their goal because it's not, super achievable or healthy. Well, what's nice about talking about you is, is to talk to someone who's willing to make the acknowledgement that we writers or writers, that it's part of, you know, so many people are, it's, it's such a taboo thing to say. What, that but writing doesn't that, matter? No, that, that people want to, that people go into writing and fame is a huge part of their desire. They're human beings. Yes, they are. But people don't admit that fame is a part of wanting. People don't know why I want to do this podcast because they won't acknowledge it. They like, I don't care about fame. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it. it, it you know, we're all we're all. Um, no one is above those base desires of one of, of of wanting fame. Is is the old look who just got elected president, a celebrity. You know, fame is the ultimate. Um, American accomplishment, really the ultimate ac- world accomplishment. And so uh, if you can achieve tr- true fame, then nothing is beyond your reach. And so uh, for writers to um, to say that they are above those desires is, is uh, to me, just a little disingenuous. You just need to um, come to terms with it and, you know, understand that it's probably not going to happen. And once you understand that, then you can be free. Well, thanks. You, you are welcome. I, I, I look forward to more from you and, and you're, you're still famous to me. <laughs> well, thanks, Jamie. I, I, I appreciate that. Um, just, uh, you know, hey, what I always say, if someone ever says that to me, I'll, I'm always like, spend 20 minutes with me. Now, wait until I refuse to pick up the tab and then I will then I then I will no longer be famous to you. You know, then, then you'll see me for who I really am. And you can either like it or not. But, you know, that that's kind of the way I look at it. It's like fame. It's 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 it, it's all meaningless. <laughs> so with on that note, happy Thanksgiving to you. Man. And um, and uh, let me know when this appears. All right. Take it easy, man. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. You can find all things Neil Pollock at neilpollock.com, and that is N-E-A-L-P-O-L-L-A-C-K.com. That's N-E-A-L, not N-E-I-L. And you can find us at 15minutes, jamieberger.com. That's 1-5-minutes, J-A-M-I-E-B-E-R-G-E-R.com. As ever, please do all the little things you can do to help support a podcast if you indeed want to support this podcast, such as rating and reviewing us and subscribing on iTunes, whether you use iTunes or not for your podcasting. And if you really love the show, you can find us on patreon.com and make a little donation per episode. Back soon with George Saunders.
This is 15 Minutes. I'm Jamie Berger.